Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Female Founders Network, a podcast brought to you by invoice to go I'm your host, Nat, and I'm joined by my co-host, Sylvie. Hey, everyone. We record our show in the Forbes Street studio in downtown Sydney, Australia, but we bring guests from all over the world. So you'll hear people from the U.S., the United Kingdom, Europe, the Asia Pacific, anywhere that we find women who lead and inspire others. This is a great podcast for women who are navigating business ownership, leadership, or just life. Each episode should connect you with someone else's story, but also leave you with practical tips and advice that you can use in your own life and in your own business. Hi, guys. Today, we're speaking with Selena Kulkarni, a chartered accountant turned property investor that now helps business owners and entrepreneurs grow their personal wealth. We discuss five types of property investment that you may not have heard of before and get into Selena's insights on how to truly grow cash flow positive personal wealth through a diverse portfolio. We hope you enjoy the episode. Hi, Selena. How are you today? Oh, great. So great to be on. Thanks, guys. Ah, oh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you. So Excited. where are you calling in from? So I am in sunny Canberra today. Beautiful. Uh, nation's capital. Beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> for those of you who don't know, that is the capital of Australia. It's like, um, it's not halfway in between Melbourne and Australia. It's kind of like closer to, sorry, Sydney, right? Didn't they choose totally. Canberra it, to be the capital for that reason? Because it was halfway between Sydney and Melbourne. No, look, I think it's definitely much closer to Sydney, but um, it is a very random place in the middle of what feels like nowhere. Um, We're a couple of hours from the beach, a couple of hours from the snow, a couple of hours from Sydney. Um, But yeah, it, you know, no one, I mean, it doesn't really make sense, but I think uh, it's just a pretty, pretty valley is what I'd say. There you go. Oh, well, I'll have to visit. I I can't believe I haven't made it there yet. Um, (laughs) Well, you know, you have a very interesting background, which is definitely different from um, a lot of the other guests that we've had on the show. But we want to get to know you first before we talk about your business. So do you want to tell us how you became Selena? Sure. Well, um, look, I uh, definitely didn't uh, have grand designs to become a money and wealth person. I mm. actually wanted to be a vet growing up. Oh. Um but somehow, you know, one reason or another couldn't do that. And so when I got to university, I chose commerce and economics as a, I'll just do this until I figure out what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And then as a graduate, I went into, you know, the big four, traditional accounting firm, Deloitte, yep. and became a chartered accountant and realised probably very early on that it wasn't really a great fit for me as a profession. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I definitely felt like a, you know, square pig in a round hole. Mm. There's, a, there's an element of being an accountant which is great because, you know, there's definitely deep satisfaction when things balance and all of that, but <laughs> it's not a very creative kind of outlet. And so, you know, I worked, went to the UK and I worked in Hong Kong and New York and travelled all around the world earning crazy money and just having a great time. And I think it was um, when I came back was really when I said, look, you know, I like the skill set. I just don't like the how it's applied. And so I kind of set about, you know, working in small business and I set up a, a few small businesses and I consulted to business and went more into management consulting. And in the background, my now husband, who was my boyfriend back then, was uh, uh, really very interested in money and wealth creation. And neither of us had a great income. You know, I think 
the highest income I had when I worked was maybe 80,000. It was pretty ordinary. Mm -hmm. But it was at a time when, you know, property and investing and all of that was kind of in its infancy compared to where it is right now. Mm. And so at that time you could almost, you know, throw a dart at the map of Australia and you'd probably have done all right. Yeah. But I, I kind of turned a bit of a blind eye to what he was doing and you know, he'd put paperwork in front of me and I would blindly sign it. And <laughs> after a few years, I just started to go, oh, God, you know, better have a look at what you're doing. And once I started to recognise how you could use things like property to really leverage yourself, you know, in terms of your wealth and financial position, I, I really threw myself into it. Yeah. And with the skills and background that I had, it, it was pretty it was a pretty good match in terms of you know understanding the play of numbers and then I basically said to him after a little while look step aside I'll take it from here (laughs) and uh you know I guess my my journey around wealth and property has been probably more meandering than most would expect Mm. because I think I've really enjoyed the creative side of investing Mm. and I really do think it's more of an art than a science so I've, you know, I've, I feel like I've done a, a little bit of a lot of things like, you know, syndications and property development and stratering and buy and hold and redevelopment and flipping and, you know, mm-hmm. everything that you could do, I've sort of given it a go. And, and that's why where I am now is having tried a lot of different stuff and, you know, I've earned quite a lot of cuts and bruises along the way. Mm-hmm. I like that I can you know, I think I can discern, you know, the smoothest, most frictionless pathway for people when it comes to wealth building. So that's kind of led me to where I am. That's Beautiful. awesome. And so you've got your business, which is Freedom Warrior. Um, yes. And with this, you talk about innovative cash flow generating investments. So can yes. you just tell us a little bit more about what that means and how it works? Yeah, so look, in 2009, which was really the, uh, you know, sort of the middle of the global financial crisis, um, I don't know if you guys remember back then, but, you know, things really kind of stagnated in Australia, but plummeted around the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And I remember at the time, the banks, we had, you know, a reasonably large portfolio of properties and the banks kind of said, look, no more, you know, it's Mm -hmm. tough times. And, Mm -hmm. you know, Australia was trying to shield itself from the consequences of what happened in the States and the rest of the world. And so I think one of my great skills has always been the capacity to say, well, what else? Mm -hmm. Like the idea of just sitting on my hands and just waiting for, you know, the turbulence to pass didn't really sit well. And so at that time I started to look at, well, how else can you play with money and, and continue to grow and learn Uh, And so I started to look at a lot of international markets and what was happening overseas. And what came out of that was um, I started to formulate just, I guess, systems of processing information in other markets that, you know, was almost like a a checklist of, you know, if you do this, then do this, then do this, then you'll stay relatively safe. And at the time, you know, a lot of people started to get interested in things like US real estate Mm. and lost their shirt, unfortunately, because they didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. So around that time, I started to, someone convinced me to start running courses, teaching people, if you're going to invest outside of, you know, Australia, how how could you do it safely? Mm -hmm. And that was really the start of my journey into 
this world that I call, you know, alternative or innovative, uh, you know, cash flowing investments, which are investments that are backed predominantly by real estate, but mm-hmm. the way they're transacted are just uh, very different. So it's almost like, you know, shares and property are very different asset classes. Well, innovative and alternative is, is another asset class backed by real property. But what's exciting about those strategies from my perspective is that they don't require much capital. So unlike in Australia where our average house price is pushing a million dollars, it's a big asset and it's a big financial commitment for people to even buy a, an average house. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, if I can do small deals in this innovative space of, you know, as little as 15,000, 20,000 up to maybe 100, I can, I can, first of all, I get true diversification. I don't have to put all my eggs into a, you know, a single asset. And here in Australia, we, we jokingly say, well, if you've invested in Queensland and then if I go and invest in Victoria, I'm diversified. But <laughs> it's such a flimsy definition of diversification. And so yeah. my thinking is that, number one, it gives me strength around the ability to diversify geographically across different liquidity points um, I can, you know, play with different strategies. I can work with different people. Um, but I guess the, the other side of it is for the sort of assets and investments that I focus on, they have a high immunity to volatility because they're in a very affordable section of the market. So whether mm-hmm. the market moves up, down or sideways, it doesn't really impact these investments. And so for someone who's interested in Let's say you've already, you know, tried a little bit of traditional property investing and you just, you're going okay. The frustration, and and I work with business owners all the time who've maybe been investing for 20, 25 years and they've got high net worth, Mm -hmm. but they're cash starved. Mm -hmm. Like they they just can't squeeze any money out of their portfolio and they can't go any faster. And so for them, that freedom to, you know, spend their time differently, whether they, you know, you know, retirement's a bit of a dirty word for a lot of entrepreneurs, but <laughs> just that freedom to choose, I think it's, they don't have that. And so what I'm trying to show people is that it's it's not, you know, the, the two extremes are you could own, let's say $10 million of net assets in Australia in traditional property and maybe squeeze $100,000 cash flow out of it and at the other end of the spectrum, you can have, you know, a, a million dollars in alternative and get a hundred thousand. So, mm-hmm. what I'm trying to educate people on is it's not one end or the other. It's about understanding the play of, you know, what do you feel good about. But by incorporating a little bit of these alternative strategies into your game plan, you can, you know, it's game over for people much sooner than the traditional 20, 30, 40 years that you, it would normally take. Yeah, so mm-hmm. I think this it might be a new con- concept to some of our listeners and it and it is kind of to me as well. Um, I, I only started looking into it when I was sort of, you know, looking into your business and what you do. But basically, are you saying that you can own part of a property and it's like a syndicate where you each put in 20,000 and then you're all part owners? Is that how it works to be able to put in less money but still Um, own an asset yeah look really great question I think there's um the thing to understand is the the world of alternative as as I've become comfortable with it has five buckets of strategies that I feel are palatable to the average Australian investor so one of those types of investments is syndications and that's where you've got um a deal maker I'll call them 
mm-hmm. who acquires a single asset and then as a group of investors we we do something to that asset to create forced appreciation and generally speaking the asset will already be cash flowing mm-hmm. so you earn cash flow from day one and usually it's a two or three year project at the end you get a big lump sum in terms of capital improvement which doesn't require a rising market then so you've could, got lending sorry, opportunities just for an example sorry. could that be like yeah. an office building that you completely renovate and then it's worth more but you've already got a business tenant in there uh, so a better example would probably be more residential housing. So okay. mm-hmm. someone buys an apartment building, apartment complex, and let's say for whatever reason the apartment has been not looked after, so it's, you know, it's a bit run down. And so you, you buy it at a discounted price mm-hmm. and, you know, it's in a good area. It has, you know, a, a, the people who want to live there are, you know, families and good working class people we're not being trying to be slumlords here mm-hmm. we're going into areas which you know you or I could live in mm-hmm. and we're buying the uh, apartment complex and we have a very detailed project plan for how we're going to systematically make improvements to the common areas the the landscaping the pool you know the interior of the building okay. each apartment one by one and the exterior and that might be a a 3 year plan but at the end, if we've purchased, let's say we've, I'm just pulling a number out of the air here, but let's say yep. the apartment building gets bought for $6 million, um, and maybe you've put in $100,000. Um, at the end, uh, the, the best, like let's say you put 100000 in, you might earn 7% per annum in cash flow mm-hmm. on your money from day one. Mm-hmm. And that's because at the, st- at the level that the building is already at, it's already returning positive cash flow. Yeah. By the end of the project, because they've gone through and renovated, that building might be worth $10 million now. Hmm. And so what that means is that the, um, the way the project runs is you'll get your 7% per annum for the three years as cash flow. And then on top of that, you might get another 5% as a return on your capital as the forced appreciation because huh. obviously it's, it's worth a lot more now. But the, the important consideration is even if the market went up, down or sideways, it, it wouldn't necessarily impact the value of that property because it's it's highly sought after. It's got a, you know, there's always people out there in the right location in buying. Yeah. Yeah, for the, for the better properties. And so this is where your network becomes super important. And I couldn't go out there and find those deals. So I rely on, you know, my network to bring those deals to the table so I can participate. It's huh. interesting. Very I've heard interesting. like so my dad um invests in a lot of property in the states and I've heard conflicting pieces of advice, of advice around it and I guess it depends on you know if you want a really long-term investment or a more short-term investment for cash flow like you're talking about. Um whereas he like prefers to go into up and coming areas and like help a neighborhood kind of um you know revitalize itself. Um, so a part, an, an area of a city where there might be a lot of rundown apartments, you know, it might need a lot of love and TLC, but he knows that the, the city in which it resides is going to dump a bunch of money into it for infrastructure or something else or build a new park or a new school, et cetera, et cetera. So he'll start investing in properties in that area, but he holds on to them long term. 
So Well, look, I mean, the, uh, the thing that we just spoke, spoke about with the syndicate was just an example of like yeah. a shorter term thing. Yeah. But I think the idea is like imagine instead of having to just do the traditional buy and hold that we know in Australia or even if we're a bit more risk tolerant, maybe we go after some developments. And, you know, I've done a lot of these sorts of projects and for clients, mm -hmm. but imagine being able to cherry pick from dozens and dozens and dozens of deals yeah like a short-term syndication what your dad does sounds awesome and that would be another example of a, a longer term strategy yeah and you know but if you don't have to commit the the huge dollars that we kind of accept as being the norm here and you could cherry pick it and take small bites of many cherries yeah then it, it just builds a blanket of you know great opportunities with less exposure and risk to one particular, you know, area of the market or one yeah. particular sort of economic situation. And I, I think those, um, those syndications that you're talking about that your dad does are amazing mm -hmm. and I love those as well. Um, they're more guess, available yeah, in the so states many. too though you know like I've Absolutely. noticed that for sure there's there's a lot of like older cities that are up and coming or being revitalized in some way in the states absolutely so you get well, here, the thing to understand is australia love real estate like yeah. every man and their dog in australia knows about property yeah and so the problem <laughs> the problem we have in australia is you know relatively speaking we have become a nation obsessed with property and so the market is very efficient mm. and what that means is for you and i to go out and find good deals here we've got to work really hard we've yeah. got to you know, either spend the time or engage a buyer's agent. Mm. In the States, it's very different for the population and for the volume of property. It's a very inefficient market. Mm. And so because of that, provided you're working with people that you know, like and trust, you know, you can find, you know, the deal flow is more plentiful. The, you know, the creative play of how they transact property is totally different to mm. here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so for the smart investor... That presents amazing opportunity. Um, I'm certainly not advocating that people just run out and throw money into that market because it's, you know, as with anything, you, you need to really know what you're looking at. But I, I do think it's a it's a completely overlooked sector of property investing that people could be making a whole lot of money out of. Mm -hmm. And especially now in the uncertain times that we're in, it's it cash is king. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that explanation. And uh, I interrupted you, but you did say that there were that was just one of five strategies. Yeah, um, can you just briefly tell us the other kind of things that people can invest in? Property? Yeah. Well, you know, there's obviously there's syndications, there's lending opportunities where you act as the bank. Mm. There's uh, joint ventures. Uh, there's um, private funds, and you know that's hugely popular with people I work with because. You know, your you know each fund might have a slightly different strategy. Some might be doing you know the sorts of things that you just mentioned your father was doing. Yep. Some might be doing um, hotel conversions. You know, stealth storage, uh, debt funds. You know, there's so many different permutations. And then, um, you know, and then the final one is direct property. But you know, a, a lot of people that I work with choose direct property as the you know the lowest ranking out of all of them because. Mm -hmm. They don't want the hassle of tenants yeah. and toilets. Yeah. You know, yep. with these other strategies, <laughs> you just put your money in and you get you get your cash flow or you get your return and you don't have to deal with, you know, tenant turnovers and broken toilets. Evicting so, people. 
as well. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's another thing. Like um, you have to think about the personal mm. aspect of it, like having a property manager or something like that. If if you are the sole owner of a property, there are all of these little pieces that you have to totally. go through and set up, really. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. So yeah. I read this thing. I, I wonder what your opinion is, Selena. Um, and that was that the home that you live in is not an investment. Ah, yes. Well, this is a very uh, uh, a topic that's got a lot of charge for people, I think. Mm. <laughs> um, some of the people I know who I would say are very passionate investors totally believe in the whole concept of rent vesting. Yes. Because they, you know, when you rent the home you live in, it, you know, increases. If you think of your ability to borrow from the banks as a glass of water, it just makes that glass a little bit deeper if you don't own your own home. Mm. So can you just quickly explain what rent vesting means as well? So rent vesting means you believe in not owning your own home. You rent Mm -hmm. in order to maximise the amount of money that the banks will lend you to then invest. So uh, there's a trend, particularly amongst younger people, that they will have no interest in owning their own property. Mm-hmm. They want to be, you know, basically invest wholly investors. Yeah. And then obviously the other cohort are people who believe that you should go out and buy the highest value property that you possibly can and that, you know, by virtue of the fact that that goes up over time, that you'll end up in a position where you inadvertently make money. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess... The only there's a concept that I talk about a lot, which is big fat lazy pandas. <laughs> and okay. Whether you own your own home or you don't, I think there's a lot of Australians who are guilty of investing in properties which become big fat lazy pandas. Okay. And a big fat lazy panda is an asset that's maybe pretty high in value. Um, maybe it's not giving you any cash flow. In fact, maybe it's costing you money to hold it. Yeah. And at some point, it's not really giving you much growth either. Um, And yet a lot of people just kind of, because they're not looking at their portfolio critically, they Mm -hmm. end up in a situation where they've accidentally got a a few big fat lazy pandas in there. And one's own home can sometimes fall into that bucket as well, which is, is fine if you're doing it consciously, but it's more that if you are not conscious about it that it can become a problem so I've realized this about the suburb that I live in because I currently live in Bondi Beach which is a notoriously expensive suburb in (laughs) Sydney and Australia and it's actually um, the price of the property versus the weekly rental income or monthly rental income that you can charge for it it's it's a really low rental yield I think like below one percent or something or kind of like yes it's it's shocking you you just get (laughs) so an investment there or to buy there isn't actually a great investment if you're thinking of property in that way. And I know a lot of people who actually choose to rent in Bondi but have bought a property somewhere else in the country, like up in Byron Bay, which is a very um, popular holiday spot, or down in Wollongong or a, a place called Wagga Wagga, which, uh, yes, American listeners, that is actually a place name. <laughs> Um, so for those listening, let's do a couple more <laughs> translations. So yeah. so it would be like renting in Santa Monica and then buying out, you know, um, in Pasadena and, okay. you know, renting out your, your house in Pasadena, but living every day and paying rent to live every day in Santa Monica. Yeah. And so that is 
basically them rent vesting then, isn't it? Well, here's the thing. The people who philosophically agree with the idea of buying blue chip property, let's say, for example, a, a two bedroom unit in the eastern suburbs, yeah. really what they're saying is I'm happy to carry the financial pain of the negative twenty or thirty thousand dollars a year in cash flow, as long as the value of that property goes up more than that every year. Okay. So, in a rising market here in Australia, it's it, it's one of the best real estate property markets in the world because historically we've had exceptional growth. And obviously, you girls would know that Sydney's mm. just been crazy for the last you know five six years. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that you know, if you are someone who's got a very high income. Mm-hmm. then that strategy might be palatable for you because even if you lose $30,000 a year in cash flow holding that property, it might go up $60,000 or $70,000 or $100,000 a year. And so you say, well, you know, that makes sense to me. I get a tax deduction and my property goes up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But for the average Australian, that property strategy is really hard to sustain And so years and years ago, there used to be all these people and property experts out there trying to tell you, go out and buy as many properties as you can. But you can start to see, number one, the banks are not comfortable with that anymore. Mm -hmm. And they will limit the number of properties that you can buy based on the income you have. So you go out and buy one or two of those and you're done. Mm. Whereas, you know, there are other strategies out there and even in Australia where you can buy and you know, busy regional areas where maybe you don't have the, you know, crazy capital growth, but you get a good capital growth, but it doesn't cost you money to hold. Mm -hmm. And so I think the thing about investing is, you know, I I try and be as agnostic about it as possible. I don't have strong views on something being good or bad or or anything. I, I just believe that there's opportunity cost and preference. Yeah. And so you've really got to decide what sits well with you and why are you doing it? Mm -hmm. But I think too many people get, there's so much noise in the media about Mm. what's good and what's bad. Yeah. And so I think people get influenced by that when they think about investing Mm -hmm. and building wealth and that they just do it blindly. And then they end up in a situation where they've, they've got these massive assets, they hurt to carry. And let's say, for example, COVID had had a different impact on the property market like it's doing reasonably well now Mm -hmm. whether that's sustainable or not who knows but you know what happens if you know the market either flatlines or goes backwards if you're carrying negatively cash flowing property and the market doesn't do well it it, it is going to hurt yeah Yeah. so you have to future proof and think about it's not just the situation that I'm in now there's all these other scenarios that could happen and and are you prepared for them yeah here's the thing that I think about all the time about property in Sydney right because like I'm raised in a place where you can get a really nice house in a beautiful neighborhood for like 150 to 200 grand US Mm, (laughs) you know what I mean so like when I look at at Sydney in general, mm-hmm. I'm like, okay, we've got climate change happening. We don't know where Australia is going to be in 10 years. We've got, you know, obviously some of the highest property prices and highest costs of living. You know, sometimes yes. an avocado in the city is $8 mm-hmm. if the season hits you wrong. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm like, yeah. huh, so, okay, how do you win here? It can look like an insurmountable task to, to win yes. at property in places like this. You know, you're so right. And yeah. and what I would say is, um, 
I feel for younger investors these days. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I do a lot of work with teenagers and, you know, it's it's easy to get disheartened by property prices, by the cost of living, all the things you're talking about. Mm. But I also know that there's, you know, it, it's there's a little bit of grit required yep. to get your foot in the door mm. and to get started. And part of the reason I say to people, look, if you can get your foot in the door on, you know, a reasonable you know, piece of real estate, it's probably going to set you up down the track. But I do think that the pursuit of more being better is not the right mindset to have. Mm. More is not better. Mm. You know, and I've worked with people who've had, you know, tens of millions of dollars in net worth. And as I said, they're they're in so much financial pain. Yeah. They are still decades away from any kind of freedom. And so I think, imagine if you had a smaller net worth, but you just used it to kind of make the most of the, you know, the opportunities around the world rather than just on your doorstep, which is the maybe the place you're most familiar with. Mm-hmm. And there's there's no there's no question you have to you have to get your foot in the door somewhere. And Australian real estate's great for building capital, mm. but at some point, let's say the banks say we're not going to lend you anymore, or as you said, maybe the Australian economy maybe flatlines a little bit. Who knows? But y- you've got to you've got to have other sources to help you continue to to grow and create wealth. And that's why I think be, the more agnostic you can be about the what and the where and start to look at investments for what they are and what they give you, I think it's, it's a better mindset for success. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's very solid advice. And I think there's a lot we can learn from you. Um, and I'd love we've covered a lot about property and there is a way that we can learn from you because of your business which is Freedom Warrior and um, these are programs which are designed to help business owners Mm. um, grow their wealth Um, you have programs for business owners executives and also tradies or um, construction professionals can you tell us about how you started this and what the programs include yeah, so look, I um, I kind of think of myself as a strategist first and foremost. And, and as I said, like I try not to have biases for or against any particular strategy. I think what I'm really good at, though, is actually helping someone look at who they are, what they have, what the future looks like, what they want, and kind of helping them design the best plan to get there. And, you know, I only launched Freedom Warrior a, a few years ago, but Prior to that, I was just working with people one-on-one and just helping them map out a plan. And And one of my mentors in the States kind of said to me, look, Selena, what, what you're doing is fine, but you can help more people if you do it in a, in a mastermind format. Hmm. And so Freedom Warrior was really uh, the business or the program that I created out of a, a desire to see, you know, business owners, they put their heart and soul into their business and what I got really tired of seeing was people who were winning in their industry and business and then really failing around their investing and sort of to some degree self-sabotaging. Hmm. And because business owners are busy and they're time poor, they were often abdicating control of their decision making to other people. And so Freedom Warrior was really a, a mastermind that was designed to give business owners the you know, the, the the wisdom and the insight and the network that they needed 
to make investment decisions more effectively. So my job is really to be the guide and to show them what's possible and then empower them to make the decisions about what feels like it's a fit. And part of that is, you know, I think the, the two big challenges for any investor is number one, just getting the minimum viable information to make good decisions. And then the number two is how do they find the deals? Mm. Yeah. So the Freedom Warrior program was about working with, you know, business owners who recognise that, you know, they want to get results quickly. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I, you know, part of my role as the guide is to bring the world's best advisors and deal makers to the table and create a buffet of opportunities that they can just cherry pick from, not cherry pick from. But, you know, I don't get paid based on what anyone invests in. So I can remain really independent about, you know, being their guide. Um, And so that's, that's really, you know, what I see the role of the program is, is really to help people win in, and specifically business owners, Mm -hmm. who I see them win in business, and then they struggle around converting that into any kind of meaningful wealth. And so they end up stuck in their businesses, yeah. whether they like it or not. Yeah. How yeah, do you think so, we can get more women into investing? Because it is traditionally Oh, look, that's more male. amazing, yeah. <laughs> yeah, look, um, I'd love more women to em- embrace this as well. I think, um, sadly, I think the stereotype is that, you know, if, if you've got a male running a business, then he will usually take charge of the investment decision-making as well. Mm. But a, a, a newer trend that I'm seeing is where you've got a couple who run a business, mm-hmm. often it's the, uh, the female or one of the females in the partnership that kind of goes, well, actually, as I said, this isn't rocket science and it's about you know, demystifying and, and taking away the complexity. And if you if you have the right information, you can make better decisions. And so, yeah, I'd love more women to be involved in this. And and as I said, like at the moment, I, I kind of, I charge a reasonable fee to work with business owners, but I, I work with teenagers for nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, awesome. And I think, I think mentoring people uh, and including women as well, I'd, I'd love to, you know, it, it's all about bandwidth though, isn't it? It's, you know, yeah. you've got limited <laughs> bandwidth and hours in the day. But, um, you know, I'm starting to get more inquiries from women. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think often women are often um, primary carers at home. Yeah. So, you know, between maybe running their businesses and looking after the family, they might not feel they have the uh, the headspace. But, yeah, and know, that's this stuff... Yeah, that's the thing with investing is that sometimes retirement feels so far away that it's quite a low priority, <laughs> even though it's actually a high priority overall. Well, you know, I, I think you're right. And I think, um, <coughs> excuse me, traditional investing is a 20 or 30 or 40 year game. The, the kind of game that I'm playing mm-hmm. is how would it change your world if I could get you to a point in five years or less where your investments were earning enough money to cover your living expenses. Mm. Dream because life. Because that's, that's life. <laughs> well, it's not though. Mm. But, you know, and that's really what I'm trying to show people. Take a little bit of the capital that you've already created and divert it into some better performing investments and game over can happen, you know, pretty fast. Mm. It, it doesn't have to be the, you know, 15, 20, 30-year timeline that people think. And I... I can show, you know, there's there's a couple of cool tools which I'll, I'll send you the links to so you can add them to your show notes. But, you know, there's calculators that I can show you. If you do nothing, 
this is how long it's going to take you to hit your goals. And if we do a little bit of this, guess what? You'll you'll make it there in two and a half years. Yeah. You know, a, you know, a calculator that really, really drove it home for me was a compound interest calculator and showing yeah. how um, if you have investments in in sort of like an index fund, for example, and how if you keep that money in there and invest it over time and depending on how much you put in initially and then how much goes in every month, how actually the compound interest, which is the interest that you've earned on the investment and then the profit from the investments over time, actually can in many cases end up being more than the money that you put in yourself. And that really blew my mind. (laughs) Look, there's a whole trend of... um groups who call themselves, I think it's almost like a cult following mustachianism <laughs> and it's all about the, the minimalism around the way you spend money. Mm. And the idea is exactly what you're saying. If you at age 20 started putting money into any kind of investing where you could just allow it to compound and if you lived very frugally, you could get to a point where, you know, you could live off, I think it's like 4% of your capital from age 30 and then you, you never have to work again. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, compound interest is an amazing concept. There's also this thing where, like, um, you know, life is, is a lot different now than it used to be, right? Like, people aren't wanting to wait mm-hmm. until they're 65 to take time to explore the world no. and, and whatnot. <laughs> and they're not wanting to just do it in their early 20s before they start their, their career and then not do it again throughout their career as well. So it's like... Um, I, I watched this a long time ago, um, gosh, 10 years ago. I watched a speech by a famous um, designer called Stefan Sagmeister, and he talked about how he had incremental sabbaticals throughout his life, mm-hmm. and he'd set up his business and finances and whatnot in order to support these sabbaticals. So I think that's one of the most interesting things about this is it gives you the freedom then to do what you want to do. Like if you have... Um, you know, this cash flow that you've set up for yourself, then you can take mm. a sabbatical when you're 32 and another one when you're 36 if you want to and another one when yeah. you're, you know, it's it just creates all of this opportunity for you. Yeah. I think you've hit the nail on the head and, and I, I, I guess my feelings would be aligned with that in that I don't see the purpose of wealth building. It's got nothing to do with fancy cars and big houses and you know, all, all the fancy holidays. For me, mm. it's about that freedom of choice and mm-hmm. that capacity to know that, you know, if something happened and you needed to take time out or if you chose to take time out, you'd be okay. And I think, you know, I, I really admire the younger generation that are coming through that have, you know, they don't want to just put their nose down and work till 65. You know, that's that's not necessarily their highest value. And, you know, if you talk to people about the concept of financial legacy, and I know that, you know, with, with some of my clients, it's it's a really important idea for them to create a financial legacy. But then when you pull that apart and, and it's really, well, what does that mean? Really financial legacy is about having the time and the resources and the influence to, you know, shape you know, your, the causes you care about, the people you care about, your tribe, your community mm. in the way that you want. So for me, money is more about the freedom to influence the world the way I want to influence it. And the truth of the matter is if you're, you know, nose to the grindstone and you're just trying to eke out a living, whether you run a business or you work in a job, it's, it's, it's not, it, it's, you're never going to have the freedom to explore how else could you make an impact in the world. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I think you've, you, what you're saying is exactly right. It's about freedom of choice. Mm. Totally. Beautiful. So someone's just listened to this podcast and they have an open mouth and they're very excited by everything they've just heard. <laughs> like what, us. <laughs> like us. What is, <laughs> what is the first thing that someone interested in growing their wealth should do right now? Mm, and you can I would say, plug Freedom Warrior if you want. <laughs> no, no. I, look, I, um, I genuinely feel the cornerstone of wealth building is stewardship. And in Australia in particular, it is a word that has died. Like it, it maybe gets used a little more in the States, mm. but stewardship is the art of caring for the money and resources that come into your world. Mm. And mm. the starting point with someone, when I've been working with them over the last you know decade or so, regardless of whether they have a net worth of, you know, $100 or, you know, 10, 20 million, is let's look at your capacity to look after the resources and the money that you have. Because the Mm. bottom line is unless you live within your means and you have a capacity to create surplus Mm -hmm. to set aside money to invest, you will never grow wealthy. Yeah. Yeah. So whether you're earning... $10 $10 an hour. And I actually run through this with teenagers who, who go, well, how can I possibly even save $50,000? And what I show them, I show them a little plan. I say, imagine you're, you're 14 and you earn this amount of money and you can earn six, you can work six hours a week. And then when you're seven, you know, and I, I, mm-hmm. I show them that if they kind of just put aside a certain percentage, and I, I can't remember what the percentages are, but by the time you're 20, 21, obviously your living expenses have gone up. But you, I show them how from age 14 to 20, you can get to 50K. Wow. And what I've witnessed in so many people, regardless of their income, their cultural heritage, where they've come from, when people come to Australia, especially as migrants, it totally is the land of opportunity mm. because, you know, there's no barrier to, you know, getting into real estate or getting into any kind of an investment. And so I see migrants come here who will work two, three jobs save 50 to 100,000 within two or three years because they they stack, you know, shelves at Woolies or Coles and then they, they have a day job and then they do babysitting on the weekend, you know, whatever it ends up being. Mm-hmm. So it, it's really a, a little bit about grit and determination of just setting a goal and then working towards it. But stewardship, it, it's a lost art. Mm. And even now, you know, when when I work with high net worth individuals, they can be a bit loosey goosey about their numbers. Yeah. Like you know, you say where do, where does your money go, and they really have no idea. Yeah. And so <laughs> there are some. There's actually a. Um, I think there might be a video that I've stuck up on YouTube, and I have read, I don't even know how many books, how many books on money management, mm. and like me personally, I can't stand budgeting. Mm. I hate the minutiae of. Yes, you can spend $4 on a coffee today, but not tomorrow. Like I hate all that stuff. Yeah. Mm. So I came up with my hybrid, which is really picking the, the best bits of everybody else's. And I call it guerrilla tactics for money management. Okay. Mm. And um, I think there's a YouTube video on my, um, <coughs> on my page that kind of describes it. And it's really about set and forget and, you know, really just automate as much as you can, set aside money into three buckets in three separate banks and like have the, um, you know, the accumulation of your funds happen effortlessly. Mm. And if you can maintain that when you're earning $100 or whether you're earning, you know, $10,000 a week, if you can maintain those disciplines, you know, all of your life, it's, that's the difference that makes the biggest difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
really. You know, the, the, the finding the good deals and investing is kind of like part two. Yeah, yeah. But if you can't even get out of the gates with part one, and, and this is why when you see people who are super high earners, sometimes it's it's almost, there's a bit of sadness because, you know, they have they have that advantage of creating a huge amount of fuel to create wealth. And instead I see, you know, it just gets lost and, and dissipated and spent. Yeah, by their children. So, <laughs> yeah, well, children and themselves, people love their toys. Yeah, 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 yeah. that's true. I um, It's so funny when you're talking about stewardship and then 14-year-olds, I have a 14-year-old son. And our deal is, because I like to teach him, you know, like a lot of parents will buy their kids cars and stuff like that and I'm like no way you're gonna earn (laughs) your Um, way and so I told him that I will match what he saves for his first car because yeah great right but then he did all of this calculation and he said he came back to me and he's like mom I could if I at my current rates for my grass mowing business that he started I could earn exactly and it was like over 10,000 something (laughs) and this like per summer if I did this many hours and I was like thinking to myself oh shit like this kid's (laughs) gonna come to me in a year with like 20 grand or something and then he's gonna have like a nicer car than I do (laughs) that's so funny I did the same deal with my 14 year old except what I said was um I will match you dollar for dollar up to a maximum spend of 5k. Okay. Cuz I want I want them to set aside money for an investment property as soon as possible. Oh, yeah. so good. And then so then it's was, not all going in a, a depreciating asset as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'd rather I mean, for 5 grand you can get a half decent car, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah right. Um yeah, oh, I don't know that awesome. you needed twenty thousand. You, you want to gently encourage him in a different direction. I think, <laughs> I think so too. <laughs> that's awesome, Henry. You do not need to be that cool, buddy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's it. Oh, mm. Selena, it was awesome speaking with you. If someone wants to find out more, um, where can they find you? Uh, well, I'm on all the socials, but um, you know, if they just want to have a look and get in touch, then um, freedomwarrior.com.au is the the main website. But um, yeah, it's been awesome catching up with you girls. You, you're, uh, you're running a great podcast. Thank you so uh, much. Thank you so much. We've enjoyed it. Have Chat a great soon. Awesome, guys. Bye now. Chat soon. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by invoice to go We're an invoicing and billing app that helps business owners work and get paid from anywhere at any location around the globe. And we're helping close the gender-based pay gap. Because the current US gender-based pay gap sits at around 19%, listeners of the Female Founders Network podcast will get exactly 19% off of any subscription. Just use the code EMPOWERWOMEN at checkout.